evening. Nice to be here. When I was first approached, I must be honest, I was completely overwhelmed and I said, but I am not a systems engineer. I'm a lowly environmental consultant. What could I add? <laughs> so, um, but essentially I think uh, with speaking with a couple of you this evening as well, I I'm feeling slightly more at ease and I'm hoping that this topic will actually raise some discussion and debate um, going forward. So, yeah, I work for Jefferson Green and what is quite cool is I am lucky enough to work on a number of different projects and diverse projects. Many environmental consultants unfortunately get put into a box and you basically do environmental impact assessments and that's kind of where your career goes. Luckily, I've been exposed to so much and I think with my focus being on waste and waste management, I've been able to even see a lot more opportunity and more and diverse projects. So essentially, where did it all start for me? Um, and unfortunately, it started in detention at school um, and <laughs> essentially where part of the punishment was to get onto the school field and pick up litter. And that really frustrated me. It's like, why are we picking up litter? Why are, we, why are people littering? I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand why we are quite happy to carry something while it is full, uh, but as soon as it's empty, we need to get rid of it. And it doesn't matter what we do with it, it lands up on the floor, uh, it, it, it just mustn't be around us. So it got me thinking and got me just trying to understand human nature, but also waste. So I went to varsity and studied environmental management and essentially landed off doing my master's in uh, life cycle assessment and cost-benefit analysis of, of curbside recycling, and which seemed so rudimentary uh, now, especially when, and I think in Stellenbosch, uh, there is a two-bag system in place. Uh, some of you may be part of that, which is great. But back then when I was doing my master's, there was only a very small pilot area in Cape Town that was trying to get this type of system running. Is the Somerset waste? Sorry. <laughs> so essentially, um, that really got me thinking about waste, and this journey has taken me to essentially what is waste. And I'd like to ask, how many of you have been to a landfill site? Quite a few. And, and which landfill sites have you been to? Stellenbosch, Somerset West, Gordon's Bay. Okay, that's the drop-off. Musenberg, Coastal Park. Which one? Belleville. This is Belleville. You would recognize it then. <laughs> you just go to the drop-off, the drop-off section. Uh. Landfill sites for me are like middens. They're archaeological middens because it basically tells the history of where we have come from. But the unfortunate thing is that these don't go away. And the unfortunate thing is that we are burying valuable materials. So in my mind, I mean, that, well, firstly, that computer should never even be on that landfill site purely because it's full of hazardous materials, just in its screen itself. So essentially, landfill sites pose huge amounts of opportunity. So it started me thinking, what is our economy based on? And I just did a quick Google, and I know that Google, Wikipedia, uh, and Yahoo, not the best academic, you know, references. The thing is, I actually just did, I just wanted to see what would pop out. Like, what is our economy based on? And yes, it's based on trade, production, consumption, goods, services, production, distribution. That's all that comes up. They forget about the actual environment where we get our stuff from. If we didn't have the environment, the golden goose, essentially, we wouldn't be able to do all that stuff and we wouldn't really have an economy. So what, what, makes me, what waste makes me think about is the fact that we are actually, it's an indicator of inefficient production. It's an indicator of inefficiencies in our system. So why is this important? Essentially, since the Industrial Revolution, we've made amazing progress okay, in terms of what we can do today, we couldn't do then. It's quite incredible and quite phenomenal. But globally, we are all competing for finite resources. 
that at the moment we're designing for the dump. We're designing for landfill. And essentially what I'd like to present to you today is a slightly different way of looking at it. How can we design products that become products continually so the materials stay valuable? How many of you recycle? Great. Okay. <laughs> but now, with, that's great. Continue doing that. Okay. The problem is that a lot of our recycling isn't even true recycling. Um, so often, we'll separate everything and we'll put things aside and our plastics. But if you actually read the label, some of the stuff isn't even recyclable here in South Africa. Those, those those, uh, the packaging that actually has got proper labeling on it. But don't stop recycling, please. I'm just saying. But essentially, that's, that's the top of the iceberg. So we're all competing for valuable materials, and there's a finite supply of them. Now, this graph is quite a, it's one of those depressing ones that you, know, you, you see. But apparently, we are going to be running out of resources. Um, and yes, this is a, a purely, uh, this is, you would think it's sometimes an academic um, uh, exercise uh, in that this is based on information that we currently have, on the amount and available resources that we currently have. So essentially, we, we don't have that much time before we run out of, for example, oil, 2050. But I mean, yes, we are discovering new oil reserves. And yes, we are finding new techniques to dig deeper or to drill deeper and find and, and get to this oil. But essentially, I mean, if you look further down, the industrial metals, we haven't got that much longer before we run out of zinc, silver, gold, copper, etc. And all of those types of materials are quite vital in things like mobile phones, um, you know, all sorts of infrastructure that we rely on. Um, so essentially, and these are obviously they are globally uh, available around the world, um, but certain areas have more of these resources than, than others. So there's this global transaction of these materials constantly. For example, our scrap metal, more than 40% of what's actually recovered in South Africa is exported for further processing. And then we just buy the stuff back in again. Seriously, why are we not just processing it here? <laughs> and it's all about economics. You get a better price elsewhere, so we sell it. Same with paper. Recycling, uh, recycling markets, they go up and down constantly. The main one here that is relatively constantly priced is, is glass, because we've got console glass, we get a good price for it, and glass is 100% recyclable, it just keeps going. Um, whereas paper, Suddenly, China doesn't want our paper anymore. The, 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 the paper market just goes through the floor and everyone sits on their recyclable, recyclable, uh, recovered recyclable paper. Um, just uh, another scary graph uh, is the energy use in tons of oil equivalent per capita. And obviously, um, at the moment, you can see most of the developed nations are using much more uh, oil than than the developing nations. And, but the thing is, the developing nations are developing at a rapid rate. If we all start using the same amount of energy as the United States, I think we're in trouble, <laughs> quite frankly, unless we find alternatives. So essentially, at the moment, we are really on this linear economy where we're looking at taking stuff out of the ground at huge expense. So we're extracting valuable resources. We're making valuable products out of them. But then essentially, once you've done with it, you dump it. So every two years, for example, mobile phones, we upgrade. What happens to the old phone? How many of you are sitting with five different mobile phones in a drawer at home? Because you really don't know what to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> How many? Ten. Ten power supply. Exactly. And each phone comes out with a different power supply and a different charger um, and different components. And if you want it repaired, it's going to cost you more than a new phone would be. So you just buy a new phone. But what happens to that mobile phone, actually? And the electronic waste is one of the biggest problem wastes in the waste industry. And it's also the potentially most lucrative, quite frankly, 
because there's so many precious metals within PCs, within uh, phones, etc. Gold um, is recovered from, from these uh, devices. And a lot of our stuff, a lot of our e-waste is actually exported. And not to China necessarily, but to Germany, <laughs> for example. And they recover gold. And you're kind of thinking, but that's nuts, because we're mining gold here, and we export it only to buy it back in a phone, and then we ex you know, send the phone back again. It's crazy. We should be doing this all here. Anyway, so we've got this linear cycle where we're basically taking valuable technical nutrients and combining it with biological nutrients, and I'll get to that in a second, and we're essentially designing products with a finite use or finite value. Whereas what happens if we actually look at a slightly different approach and look at a circular economy approach where when we designed a product, we designed for disassembly so that the technical components, the technical nutrients from that device, whatever it is, can be separated easily enough so that that material can go back into the processing manufacturing of that product and whatever biological nutrients there are from that product can then go into the biological system and be put back into the biological uh, system in terms of composting, so our food waste. Uh, at the moment, all of our food waste, unless you've got a composting bin at home, or, and then composting isn't, you know, uh, some composting systems you can't put meat in, for example, unless you've got a bokashi bin, you know. So if you've only got a worm bin, worms are fussy, you know, you can only put certain things in. You've got a composting bin, you can only put greens in and certain peel peelings and things like that. So it's about how do, we, how do we design products with this type of scenario in mind. Taking it a step further, and this is really the crux of the circular economy, um, one of them really, is breaking this down even further. So at the top you've got uh, mining materials and manufacturing, moving through the system currently, we look at materials, parts, manufacture, the product manufacturer itself, retail service provider, the user, we collect, municipalities generally collect this waste. Sometimes, and mostly in Europe, they recover energy from this through incineration, which means the, the value is lost forever. Yes, you get some energy out of it temporarily, but you're basically burning it and it's not going... Uh, anywhere from there, and then landfill. So what they're proposing is that the technical nutrients, you essentially look at systems where after the user, there's a maintenance loop. Can't we fix things anymore? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> um, if we can't fix it, what about reusing it? So if we don't really need this phone anymore, maybe we can reuse it. Somebody else can reuse that phone. Um, refurbished manufacture. So maybe that this laptop can just be refurbished and upgraded with the best, newest, latest available software. So instead of designing it, um, that actually if you don't get another new laptop like this, you've got to throw this one out, it just needs a different component that can just be plugged in easily. Um, or recycle it. So at the end of the lifespan, this laptop can be completely disassembled, every component goes back into the technical stream, can be re-molded, uh, reshaped, and uh, made into a new laptop. Technical side. On the biological side, after we've used our, uh, our, um, yeah, the, our organics, essentially, um, it goes back into the system and looking at things like anaerobic digestion. We actually did an amazing project Quite recently, the, which should be going, the AD plant should be going online this month at a retail shopping centre in Tableview. We're taking the food court waste um, and the retail, major retail's food waste, and instead of that going to landfill, which it currently is, we're now taking that waste and putting it into an anaerobic digester, and it's generating methane, and essentially will be fed into the system to generate a portion of energy for that particular center, along with PV cells and all sorts of other cool things that we've added to this particular shopping center. But um, that's one of the ways. And then the sludge from this AD plant can be used into composting. So it's completely avoiding the landfill. 
How cool is that? It's really cool. Um, yeah, so there are various ways of that biological system being put into place. So how do we achieve a move to a circular economy? And the thing is, it's, it's not like a one-step approach, I don't think. Obviously, there's a mind shift that has to happen and a different way of thinking. Um, but one way is potentially industrial symbiosis. Um, have any of you heard of industrial symbiosis at all before? Okay, it's basically... Um, how it really started was uh, mostly focused on the waste side of, of things. And essentially the definition that's, that's been accepted at the moment in, in South Africa is that it's the establishment of close working agreements between normally unrelated companies that lead to resource efficiency. Working agreements include direct reuse of one company's waste stream as another raw material, the innovative reprocessing of problematic byproducts, and the sharing of underutilized power, water, and or steam. Okay. In Europe, we, the definition has started to consider new concepts, including eco-innovation and long-term culture change, really taking into account a circular economy type of approach. So creating and sharing knowledge through network heals mutually beneficial uh, transactions for novel sourcing of required inputs, value-added destinations for non-product outputs, and improved business and technic technical processes. And I'd like to introduce you to probably the most spoken about historical uh, industrial symbiosis examples, and that's the history of Kolomborg, which is a small town, small fjord town in Denmark. And it started in the 60s, and uh, really it's one of the world's first industrial symbiosis examples, or eco-industrial parks, and it really is something that's developed organically. Um, it was based on commercial agreements, um, it's got private and public partners, and there are today about 50 different symbiotic relationships. And it started because of certain pressures they were feeling in terms of resource constraints, legislation changes, um, or legislative changes. And here's the town of Cullenborg, which looks quite, looks quite nice, actually. And here are the different uh, um, uh, plants. And essentially, the, the central hub of this particular park or this industrial system is the power station, which is a coal-fired plant. Um, they also had a large oil refinery operated, yeah, uh, Nova Nordisk, which is a maker of pharmaceuticals and enzymes, uh, Jiproc, which is a plasterboard manufacturer, um, and essentially waste, heat from all of these processes or from the, the, uh, the I think it was actually from the, the oil plant, is actually used to heat about 2,000 or 20, yeah, 2,000 houses within this area. Obviously, Denmark needs heating. <laughs> um, we wouldn't maybe need that except maybe for winter. But um, waste heat is, is very important for a source in, in Europe. Um, but all of these companies realized that they were beneficial waste products coming out of their systems. And if they linked into each other, there would be a symbiotic relationship. Obviously, some are more beneficial than others. But essentially, just the swapping of or the, the linking up of waste steam. How many industries can you think of? Actually, that you just, the steam is, why can't we capture it and use it into maybe preheat a process? or waste heat coming off furnaces. Why can't we reuse that to preheat something? Um, I'm not a chemical engineer, and I'm not a mechanical engineer. I just ask questions, really. And, and that's why you guys are so important, because <laughs> you make things work. Um, so essentially, at this particular uh, area, what was great about it is that it was quite a confined area. Things were close together, so it was almost easier to do. Now, today, there are so many industrial symbiosis examples, um, with probably the next most popular one, or the most current one, is the, national, uh, the um, Industrial Symbiosis Program of the UK. It's called NISP, and essentially they started as a regional program and have grown to be completely national in the UK, but have also spread over to various other countries in Europe um, as well. And they are making the linkages much greater than just the small example of Kalamborg was. 
linking companies that are far distances, swapping materials, uh, using reverse logistics, information sharing, um, etc. Savings to date for, well, savings to date is in 2008, uh, what I could find, but um, groundwater, 2 million cubic meters a year, surface water, 1 million cubic meters a year, natural gypsum, um, 100,000 tons per year, oil, 20,000 tons per year, and reduced, obviously, the CO2 emissions. Um, so these are obvious, amazing savings that otherwise you would be paying for, um, you know, raw materials or disposing. Hazardous waste in South Africa is really expensive to dispose of. You don't really want to be doing that. You want to be trying to minimize what you generate in the first place. Um, South Africa, what's happening here? Um, essentially, what's quite cool is that inspired by the NISP program, the Western Cape has got uh, an industrial uh, symbiosis program, which may you, some of you may know about. Um, it's actually uh, run by a non-profit organization called Green Cape, which is funded by the Western Cape government. And they've done quite well in terms of kind of encouraging uh, these programs to start up in KZN and Gauteng as well. And more recently, I was involved in a, a project to look at a screening assessment to see whether we should have a national IS strategy. I'm quite legislation averse, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I don't think we need more legislation. <laughs> Being an environmental consultant, I can throw you dead with, envir with environmental legislation, and I'm not sure it's always the most effective way of achieving anything. <laughs> so um, I would prefer that these things are voluntary, uh, that companies start talking to each other because of the economic benefits that you can achieve through these kinds of systems as opposed to the legislative stick. There are pros and cons, obviously. But the National IS strategy um, is into the next phase uh, in terms of uh, looking at actually developing the strategy and hopefully something will, will come into play. In terms of the Western Cape, just to give you an idea, some of the savings that they've uh, had up till now, and they've only been running for a couple of years, but they've done amazing, amazing things so far in terms of waste diversion, uh, some of the revenue, the additional revenue that they've earned for the companies just by having these relationships, um, some of the savings, private investment that had to be done, which is minimal in comparison to the savings, um, and the savings on um, CO2 equivalent, and some of the jobs. Okay, the job creation potential is not massive, but I mean, it's only been running for a couple of years. So, I mean, if we had more, more relationships, that could definitely grow. Okay, so what I wanted to say is that Industrial symbiosis is not silver bullets, okay, but it's a way to enlighten and maybe change the way of us thinking about the way we view waste as one of the aspects of industrial symbiosis and maybe move into a direction of circular economy. Um, circular economy really does make sense. It, it, it's, yeah, we must just try and uh, think about things slightly differently. So I want to show you an animated movie clip. There are, there are actually so many, and if I had more time, I'd actually show you, I'll leave you with a couple of links, and you can go and have a look at uh, these things on your own time. But there's some amazing resources out there, freely available on this type of thinking. So this is only a couple of minutes long, um, so I'll just uh, put that on now, and then uh, we'll finish up. Living systems have been around for a few billion years and will be around for many more. In the living world, there's no landfill. Instead, materials flow. One species waste is another's food. Energy is provided by the sun, things grow, then die, and nutrients return to the soil safely. And it works. Yet as humans, we've adopted a linear approach. We take, we make them, and we dispose. A new phone comes out, so we ditch the old one. Our washing machine packs up, so we buy another. Each time we do this, we're eating into a finite supply of resources and often producing toxic waste. It simply can't work long term. So what can? If we accept that the living world's cyclical model works, can we change our way of thinking? so that we too operate a circular economy.
head start with the biological cycle. How can our waste build capital rather than reduce it? By rethinking and redesigning products and components and the packaging they come in, we can create safe and compostable materials that help grow more stuff. As they say in the movies, no resources have been lost in the making of this material. <laughs> so what about the washing machines, mobile phones, fridges? We know they don't biodegrade. Here, we're talking about another sort of rethink, a way to cycle valuable metals, polymers, and alloys, so they maintain their quality and continue to be useful beyond the shelf life of individual products. What if the goods of today became the resources of tomorrow. It makes commercial sense. Instead of the throwaway of the place culture we've been used to, we'd adopt a return and renew one, where products and components are designed to be disassembled and regenerated. One solution may be to rethink the way we view ownership. What if we never actually owned our technologies? We simply licensed them from the manufacturers. Now, let's put these two cycles together. Imagine if we could design products to come back to their makers, their technical materials being reused, and their biological parts increasing agricultural value. Thank you. Here we have a model that builds prosperity long term. And the good news is, there are already companies out there who are beginning to adopt this way of working. But the circular economy isn't about one manufacturer changing one product. It's about all the interconnecting companies that form our infrastructure and economy coming together. It's about energy. It's about rethinking the operating system itself. We have a fantastic opportunity to open new perspectives and new horizons. Instead of remaining trapped in the frustrations of the present, with creativity and innovation, we really can rethink and redesign our future. And just a couple of uh, additional sources of information. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, I don't know if you ever, ever even heard of Ellen MacArthur at all. I hadn't, I must be honest with you. But apparently, yeah, she um, sailed around the world. She was one of the youngest and broke the world record in terms of, I think she sailed around the world in 71 days or something nuts um, through crazy storms and all sorts of things. And, um, but that experience, basically, she had to keep everything with her on the boat, obviously, to survive. I mean, she didn't have a support crew. Um, and uh, so it really, when she got back to land, she realized, actually, the similarities of being on a boat and the similarities of being on our planet are pretty much the same. So how do we work within the system? Um, so it's actually quite inspirational. Uh, lots of free resources available on that particular site. But there's also Cradle to Cradle, um, which the... Uh, I see a nod, so some people have heard of. Well, no, system engineers have talked about cradle to the grave. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely not. There is no grave. That is the point. There is no grave. There is no away. So when somebody says, you know, throw it away, where? <laughs> what are the factors in, in society opposing this? What are the factors of society opposing in terms of maybe leasing of, of equipment and, and things like that? Or something, something like, like consumerism. I mean, this feeds, consumerism feeds on the fact that you are throwing capital away. The thing is, the, the, that's exactly it. And, and the circular economy can work with that because I want the new latest cell phone. I don't want to be walking around with this lemon. So essentially... Okay. Did he just say Blackberry? <laughs> and essentially, the, the thing 
is there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to. What circular economy is trying to say is that that particular equipment, instead of the technical nutrients being tossed away, literally, it, that equipment is still valuable. So you hand the equipment back to the supplier who then hands it back to the manufacturer who takes everything apart and recovers the valuable materials and makes a new phone. The thing is, some, some, some taking apart takes quite a lot of it. It does now. No, but even like that, this is where the whole design comes to becomes, cru uh, becomes crucial in how do we design these products in the first place. Um, there was... Is, is, a guy, is highly integrated. I mean, all these materials that you're talking about in the front is highly integrated. At the moment, but does it have to be? Well, the size benefits we get currently probably is. And the phone can fit in my pocket probably can send 10 men to the moon and back. Probably. Um, but nothing, I mean, the, 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 the morsel stays the same. So why can't they just keep the, the cover things coming? Cover. But the scratched cover then gets disassembled, that plastic or whatever it is gets melted down and remelted into or reformed into another cover. I did, I, I did an experiment with my Blackberry last the previous Are we still talking about the Blackberry? The <laughs> <laughs> Blackberry and then I um, kept the phone for the next contract for three years. It dies. It's the phone was falling apart after a year. Can I tell you why? There's a correct. It's plan. It's basically planned obsolescence. The designers plan it. In fact, in terms of your cell phone battery, they design it that your battery will start failing within two years. After X number of charges, your battery will not be able to hold its charge anymore. <laughs> and it's designed that way. And why is it designed that way? So that you buy another phone. So I think we've got the we've got such huge um, we've got so many clever people that actually if we can design that we can design things that last longer or that are able to be fixed or that are able to be disassembled or the thing is if it lasts longer you don't you can't sell another one correct but that's what the circular economy is not saying the circular economy is saying that's fine we can still drive this economy and the the consumers want for new products. Efficient and easy enough, you can actually design for even shorter lives. Correct. Why don't we have uh, legal, legal um, or laws like the Europeans have or the Chinese? Have? <laughs> 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 the Europeans have ROHS, recycling of hazardous It's a law that you cannot sell something in Europe that cannot be recycled. The problem I see it though is that uh, from a recycling perspective, you're never going to recover enough. Exactly, not currently, not currently. Just from an energy perspective, you'll never recover the energy you spent on your product mm. through recycling. So we have to move towards green product design, essentially avoiding generating. Correct, exactly. I think the problem we've got in South Africa, even with our waste strategy, we're trying to add value to waste. We're trying to beneficiate it. Exactly. That's the buzzword. And it's like... No, no to me, that's, yeah, exactly. that's, <laughs> that, that's actually leading to a dangerous prediction. Yeah. In other words, when it has got a value, we're going to incentivize wasting. Yeah. So we have to move towards this aspect where we design for zero waste. Correct. Exactly. And we never actually have something going to landfill. And I think the Correct. interesting aspect you have is developing a service. Because yeah. everyone wants it working fine and nice and exactly how you want it. Yeah. So instead of buying a product, why don't you buy a service? Correct. And you don't have to deal with the malfunctioning product issue, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's many successful businesses like that who have made that transition. In fact, exactly. the most interesting one I ever read about was, was a company who decided to go green or more sustainable. Um, and they were in the carpeting business. Interface. Okay. Yeah, interface carpets. So they basically changed from their normal carpeting into squares. Yep. And then they recycled them, all the squares, and then they just offered a service. Instead of selling the, the, the carpets to the customer, they get leased. They said, you'll, you'll always have a nice carpet. And then they came in and repaired them, and then they yeah. had to repair certain patches where it was worn out, not the whole thing, less time repairing, etc. And they recycled them and put in new carpets. Exactly. So that's thinking about it up front and changing your business perspective. Instead of selling widgets, yep. Correct. They're trying to do that with chemical leasing as well. 
in that because at the moment chemical companies want to want to sell you as much chemicals as they can for your process whereas now and and sometimes but what you after what are you after when you're buying a chemical for your process in an industri industrial application you want the chemical to provide a service to you and to perform a certain function so now in certain instances they're doing something similar where the the suppliers actually demonstrating the value of the service. So if they can even um, do the same service with less chemicals, it's basically um, a win-win for both companies because that's what you're paying for, the outcome of the, 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 the service of that, that chemical. And it's the same thing with the, the carpet company. Um, and on there is actually a Circular Economy 100 uh, program where they're trying to get the main... Uh, companies around the world, biggest corporations around the world, Unilever's one, Johnson & Johnson, all these big companies to start talking about these types of things to design with a different end in mind. Yeah. And not, not generate waste. We shouldn't even be talking about waste. It's materials. Um, how do we keep them as valuable materials and not even think about landfills, which our company is very good at designing. Um, <laughs> but essentially, we even looking at how do we move away from landfills. Landfills aren't the answer at all. And neither is incineration, just FYI. It's, yeah. it's a personal opinion. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, what other, any other questions or discussions? Uh, you said uh, something about the reverse Reverse logistics. Okay, so often companies will um, uh, make a delivery to a company full of product, but they leave that company empty. So instead of leaving empty, maybe they can take empty containers back to the manufacturer, for example. Um, at the moment, there are all sorts of regulations and legislations in place that saying, no, in terms of occupational health and safety, you can't transport waste back uh, to the manufacturer in this case of it's an empty box <laughs> yeah. so um, it's, it's just changing the way we think about things and and that's why I sometimes think, think um, that regulation and legislation hampers innovation because it tries to put put everything in a certain way in the EU it's worked because in certain instances um, because they're quite compliant I don't know about you but in South Africa we're not as compliant maybe <laughs> um, I didn't actually quote that. <laughs> and, and then if we, I mean, we've got amazing environmental legislation. We've got some of the best in the world, but the enforcement aspect is just completely lacking. So, yeah, I'd like to... If you don't incentivize not wasting and polluting, then it's just going to continue. So other countries do have better incentives for wasting. They do, but the money has to come from somewhere. And unfortunately, I don't think we've got the best, well, we don't. We, we don't know how much the externalities are actually costing us. So how much do, do landfills actually cost us? We actually don't know. In Cape Town, in the better, better, bigger municipalities or metros, we may have a better idea. But in terms of externalities, especially hazardous landfill sites, there's nothing you can do with that land, <laughs> ever. If the end was very clear in mind, then legislation, I believe, could work well. But very often, we don't even know what the end is and what it's going to become. And it changes. Fashion is terrible with evolutionary. Exactly. Progress. Exactly. It's really bad for yeah. So in that sense, you're yeah. Yeah. Agreed. There was one here. Companies that are actually, I mean, if you look at the mining companies, they are reprocessing the old gold. Dumps. Hopefully, pumping that stuff back into the ground. <laughs> are there any companies that are actually exploiting landfill and extracting or material out of it to recycle? There have been a couple of studies. In fact, um, we were involved in one at Coastal Park, the one in Musenberg. Somebody said that, yeah, um, to see whether it would be viable or feasible to actually do exactly that. And um, at the moment, because of the economy as it is, in South Africa, it's not really um, feasible. It would be too costly to actually mine stuff out because of the, uh, the, um, the complex nature 
of stuff within our landfills. You can't just go in this area and that's where most of the metals will be. It's all over the place. Um, but what's interesting is that our landfills don't decompose. So, I mean, you could read a newspaper um, that's been in a landfill um, for 20 years, um, pretty much. So, it's a sealed capsule. Yeah. So you just have to think about this deep. Yeah. There is a certain amount of decomposition that does happen because obviously that's where methane does come from and that's and, and leachate, et cetera, et cetera. But at a certain point it just it just stops and it just holds everything there. So yeah. There was a question. If you go around the circle, we'll, we'll, we'll probably never get to or in the foreseeable future get to the point where we can mimic nature perfectly. Every time you go around the circle you're gonna lose some material, you're gonna use some energy that's not renewable. So I think it's imperative as well not to design just for circular, but for a long circle. Mm. To design a phone that can last for 10 years, but that can be recycled, because we aren't going to lose it. And that incremental losing is going to add up to no resources. Well, that's the thing. That's what this is trying to avoid. We're actually trying to avoid that kind of situation. Um, yeah. uh, but, but, but for, for the foreseeable... No. Mm. Exactly. No, that's why, that's why I think industrial symbiosis is a nice little entry point. It's a way of starting to think because when, once you get into this process and you start questioning your ways, often when I go into a company and um, they'll say, no, look at our energy and um, look at our water. What about your waste? No, no, waste isn't a problem. What do you mean waste isn't a problem? Can I go see where you keep your waste? And we go outside and they look and they say, no, no, we recycle and, you know, we do all this. And... I go outside and everything is, is a, it's a mess. The waste area is a mess. Um, there's one particular company in Port Elizabeth. They manufactured, um, uh, they did milling and turning for uh, components for a car manufacturer. And um, so they're using steel and aluminium rods that they cut into little sections and then they milled and turned into the little parts. And then the swarf that came off that, um, firstly the machines that they were using were very old, so they were leaking, used lots of coolant, um, and the coolant that they were using at the time was a mixture of water and this coolant. Um, and in the, the factory floor itself, there was leaking coolant. So the machines were leaking as well. And in the waste area, so that's just a little part of the story, in the waste area, the swarf was covered in, in this coolant. Um, but they were selling it as it was back to the recycler. And, but they were getting like a really bad price for it. But they were recycling. So they saw it as an income stream. Anyway, um, so one of them said, no, well, we'll just wash the swarf and we'll get a higher price for it. Okay, okay that's still not answering the question. Why is it like that in the first place? Why, why is the swarf covered in this coolant, firstly? Um, why are you trying to just sell the swarf? Um, and what actually turned out, just from like asking the questions about their process, I'm not a process engineer or anything like that, but just asking the questions about the waste and making them see that that recyclable swarf isn't an income stream. How much did you pay for that raw material in the first place? How much are you getting in for that swarf? Um, how much would you get if it was cleaner? And how do you get cleaner swarf anyway? And how do you minimize that swarf? Anyway, so eventually what they did was, and it's something that they came up with by themselves, was they actually decided to um, pilot a new line of near-dry machining. They got rid of, um, uh, they introduced machines that didn't need coolant. <laughs> um, and essentially they just, yeah, they, they then saw the value of the waste and didn't see their waste as an income stream. Because often people will see their waste as, I pay my service provider, they come, they collect, they take the container away. That's it. That's how much my waste costs. They, didn't, they don't often take into account that it's loss of raw materials, it's loss of energy that you put into making that waste, it's loss of labor, the production time, uh, rework that maybe went into it as well. All of that stuff should be included in your waste cost. It's not the 10,000 rand a month to remove that container. It's that plus, plus, plus. And as soon as you see the bigger picture, that's when you start realizing actually waste actually is important and you should be looking at it. 
Um, I forgot why I actually got into that tangent. It also seems quite scary when you not only look at the, some of the direct inputs, so in your example, how much water you're actually using yep. to deliver the, the, clean, Correct. the clean waste. Yes. Also maybe some of the embodied energy and water in your product. Correct. The water bottle, there's maybe more water gone into making the bottle than the actual bottle contains water. Exactly. So when you throw that bottle away, you're actually using your water as well. So exactly. And that plastic bottle is not... Often, that plastic bottle has got three or four different types of plastic on it. They've, they've cleaned that up a bit. But often, that particular bottle will be downcycled into roofing insulation, T-shirts, fleeces, that kind of stuff. Whereas if they designed the bottle to be maybe one plastic, that plastic bottle could be another plastic bottle. They've got a plant now in Joburg, which is now a bottle-to-bottle -bottle plant. But it's highly technical because <laughs> they've got to separate all the plastic streams. Um, but they have got a bottle-to-bottle -bottle process now in, in Johannesburg. Just a comment, that the standard water recycling, mm. I'm one of the people that deliberately has these two bags. Mm. However, a year ago I wrote to the municipality and said, how come I, I never see anything in the Akerstad news, local newspaper, about what's actually happening about the recycling? But of course the Akerstad news is a pathetic newspaper in any case. I've got no answer from this guy, and he fogged me off. I've got another guy who eventually confessed, admitted that they were doing nothing with it. So at that time, the stuff that people are literally separating is just going into the dust. And it's probably still the case today. Unless mm -hmm. anybody had heard anything to the contrary, that's what's happening with your recycled partition waste instead of what yeah, unfortunately Stellenbosch has been under a little bit of waste stress over the last couple of years. Um, I mean, if every, any of you have been to their landfill site, you, you, you don't need to be an expert to, to see. Um, the, one of the things um, I implemented a couple of years ago was... Um, and if you, if you would be keen to see this process, um, uh, there, or you could go, I'm sure you could just go and have a try and get your head peeked in. Um, there's an integrated waste management facility in Cryfontaine. Um, and essentially they, so the, the recyclables from the two bag process that comes from uh, various areas in, in the city of Cape Town, um, they go to this facility and they've got a sorting line where they literally do separate. Um, the recyclables. Stellenbosch have been a little constrained. Um, I'm sure they're not processing all the, all the second bags, but they are mm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got two questions. First of all, if you move back into that services concept. Yes. Uh, you talked about providing service then rather than selling product. Um, at to right now, I feel like a lot of people are very happy buying their phone once in five years. If you were to provide a service rather than sell a product, you would encourage a lot of people to hand their phones in rather than keep it for a long time. Exactly. Which, if you don't think about from the materials that you're using, increases production though. In a sense, aren't you creating more waste because now you need to produce a lot more of these things than you would actually be producing back in time though? Not necessarily because that phone that would have slipped in your drawer for for the five years is now actually being put back into the materials stream so that those valuable materials can be recovered as opposed to mining virgin materials. If you look at it from Samsung's point of view now, every year they're Samsung. curving the screens or they're doing something else with it, which means that the previous technology doesn't really get used much. So in a sense that Samsung needs to dispose of it in any other way rather than reuse it. Yeah, and I think this is the process, this is the journey. At the moment, that's the dilemma. But hopefully we can transition into this, this circular economy where eventually the materials actually are such that they can stay within the material stream and they're not going to become obsolete because we're designing badly, um, designing these complex polymers that actually you can't do anything with them. Yes, they make this amazing thing, but you can't reuse it or you can't actually melt it down or um, some of these, um, especially the old ones, big monitors, 
uh, with the heat-resistant plastic and the, the, cathode, the cathode row um, tubes and ray tubes and all those kinds of things. I mean, it was just bad design. It feels like by providing a service, you're just, like, <laughs> just increasing the production waste. So at the end of the day, it seems like you're just balancing the amount of waste either by this way or either by that. So, so do you think the question is, do you think if you did a survey and you asked most people who had a cell phone, if they necessarily want a new cell phone every two years, or they would be happy for a constant refurbishment to make sure that the battery lasts, it's upgraded with software, and it's got a nice non-scratch you know, screen, and it's constantly working like that? I, I get the impression that most people would actually, they don't necessarily want an upgrade, and they're often quite happy with their phone. Yeah. They just, you know, it's the yeah. battery and maybe the software and the screen gets knackered. And if you can get around those issues, then you know, I think it's actually going to reduce production shows. Mm. Mm. And, and it would, would create, but you would create new streams. Yeah. Every three months, six months to, you know, polish your screen or to give you a new screen, make sure the that software is working, everything, and when you have or something. Yeah, so quickly. Um, and that technology actually drives. Yeah, so it's a market push. I mean, it's not a necessarily demand. We're not demanding the next widgets on the cell phone. You know, we're kind of often being pushed into it. Mm. Well, it basically needs to be a balance between those things. What you're saying is rather than bringing new product, refurbish the whole stuff until you can. Until yeah. you get to a point where you don't, can't do anything with it. But then those materials are valuable enough to actually retrieve. And you create other value streams along the way. It, doesn't, it means that our production processes have to change. Yeah, I, th I, th I think one of the key points also <coughs> is just that this, this idea cannot be enforced on today's cell phone. Today's cell phone is designed for this. Mm -mm. It's, it's a progress. <laughs> it's an evolution. And that's why it's a movement towards the circular economy. Um, for example, when I first started in this, um, getting more and more in, the, in, in terms of the actual, um, yeah, when I first started, um, zero waste was thrown about. But there were a couple of hippies that used to attend um, the, the conference that basically used to talk about zero waste and be really vocal about it and everybody would go like, oh, they're talking about this stuff again. And the thing is, they were seeing stuff that nobody else was seeing at the time. Because actually zero waste is a possibility. But the terminology being used maybe wasn't correct. So it just really just looked, uh, it, it wasn't, it didn't capture anybody's attention. Whereas this could potentially work. This really could work. Um, because it's about the better design, it's about thinking things through, it's about how do we use materials um, more efficiently. I think as, as, as the uh, raw materials become scarce and become more, more expensive, yeah. then the push to actually do this, eventually this is the only thing you can do, the stuff that we're being Exactly. It will, uh, yeah. But do we wait for it to come? Or do we just, just start designing? We, we should, but um, Human nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about PCs now. Um, and we, we always looking for faster and faster and faster and higher resolution. But it, you know, there are strata of, of needs in terms of consumerism. Yeah. The use of technology anyway. So your fast i7 that you have now might be very useful for me, to me in 10 years time I'm, I'm retired <laughs> for example so, so, but the PC still works yeah. but even like the, the operating system they I'm change those 10 year old machines that I've put on Windows 8 on them and they fly so the operating systems are more can run on these old machines and they're usable full on machines they run in 10 years old so, so it's that type of thinking, you don't actually have to, to go and kill this machine. You yeah. It with more, more efficient software in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in one very curious, back to basics, not computer related, uh, I've never understood why our 
pick and pay and spa and stuff. I've never adopted the thing of packaging stuff on a brown bag like in the USA and always adopted for plastic bag. Do you maybe know an answer for that? Not necessarily. I don't even know if the brown bag is more eco-friendly than the plastic bag. Mm. I think they would argue the consumer doesn't want it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think free food lovers market, do they go paper? I think they some of some of them are paper. I can think of is that um, you know your food can get wet and damaged potentially a lot more easily. Mm. And in South Africa, unlike the States, we don't all go to the supermarket in a vehicle. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, good points. Yeah, good points. Yes. Yeah. Any last questions before we take Yes, yes, there are. Um, in fact, one of the the plastics. There's an NPO called Petco, which uh, is polyethylene terephthalate. They um, they obviously trying to recover and they encourage the recovery um, of uh, PET bottles, which is basically your water bottles and cool drink bottles and things. And um, they have actually even put out, they often have talks, seminars, and they've put out a, a guideline called Design for Recycling, where they even try, because um, often on the food grade stuff, people are very specific about, you know, oh, no, we can't put it in this because of... Yeah, all these kind of things, which is which is fine, fair enough. But it comes down to more of the marketing appeal and the visual appeal, and this is what the consumer wants. Meanwhile, there are other ways of doing it. So they put out a guideline for design for recycling in terms of what things to look out for to try and make uh, packaging, especially plastic packaging, more recyclable, so more valuable to recover. Um, yeah. So and there there are many, there are many. That's just one example actually of trying to push this. Um, yeah. So just going back to the plastic, I was thinking a, a big factor, and you'll see it in the background, other, other um, African countries, is the thickness of the bag. Yes. Legislation. So perhaps there's actually, you know, it depends on the lifetime. It's like comparing a glass bottle to a plastic bottle and seeing which is you know, better environmentally. It depends how many times you reuse it at the end of the day. So if you have a plastic package, it's probably, it could actually be quite environmentally beneficial if you use it for your life. Except now you've got a thicker bag on the landfill holding the stuff in. And, yeah. so, but I've got one more example then, actually, just, just quickly. But you'll often see dog food and uh, washing powder in this uh, uh, quite thick plastic. And um, that is generally multi-layered plastic packaging. So it's different types of plastic all put together that is not recyclable in South Africa. Anything where you see the little recycling mark, that little, the little triangle, anything above a six is not recyclable in South Africa. Even sometimes the stuff below is, is not recyclable. So I'm just, I'm just putting it out there and you'll see some of the manufacturers actually even say things like, this plastic bag is better for the environment than a cardboard box. And you're kind of going, no. <laughs> Coming to that concept, I always find it very appreciative when old people bring their old bags and stuff into the check. I always wonder why. Sorry, I'm saying. I always, always, why do they not? Why do these checkers and spa and stuff not give them reward points for doing that? But we're getting reward points for everything else. That's another thing because because the main thing. Because they have their own bags there to 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 sell. <laughs> So if they're not pushing for recycling, it's going to be very difficult to motivate other people. Mm. Mm. We're all part of the system. Yeah.
Yeah, he's Oh wow, thank you. Oh, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> thank you. Oh, and this is a lovely wine. That's divine. Thank you. Yes, I'll ask him to save it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, guys.